0: Can't even see?
1: Do you want me to read it?
0: Holy <laughs> shit. It's a good show.
1: <laughs> Apparently. I'm gonna run away as far as I can from you there. I'm gonna hide you and you won't see me again. You laugh at me, but now you know I think it's my turn.
0: You say you love, but you have falls on the plane. Hi, and welcome to Halfway History. I'm Jonathan.
1: And I'm Kylie. And this is a
0: show where we talk about the upcoming week, but a long time ago.
1: Not so long ago this time. Yeah, same here. Alright, cool. Um, I have um no updates, do you?
0: Man, I feel like I had an update, but I don't remember anymore.
1: Well, too late now. Yep, too late now. <laughs> if you remember, just spit it out. Yep. Um I'm in 1937.
0: I am in nineteen seventy-two, so that All means right. you're up.
1: Me first. All right, so this week I want to talk about one of my favorite authors. I even have a tattoo inspired by their work. Do you know who it
0: is? You yelled at me earlier while we were taking notes because I said I was familiar with this. Are you very familiar with your topic as well?
1: Maybe. Uh
0: (laughs) Uh-huh. I'm willing to bet it's Tolkien.
1: Yes, yes it is. Um, On September 21st, 1937, John Ronald Ruel Tolkien, better known as J.R.R. Tolkien, pretty good reason i think that's a mouthful of a name um his book the hobbit was published by george allen and unwin in london so the hobbit is set within his fictional universe and follows the quest of home-loving bilbo baggins bilbo who is the namesake of our puppy dog and our currently silent third co-host we'll see if that lasts it's early in the morning this time around so he's very awake (laughs) book follows home-loving bilbo baggins um, who is a hobbit, to win a share of the treasure guarded by Smog the dragon. Bilbo's journey takes him from lighthearted rural surroundings into more sinister territory. Um, and he helps a group of dwarves reclaim their homeland, essentially. Hmm. Well, try to, anyway. So initially, the tale of the hobbit was merely a bedtime story Tolkien told to his sons, John, Michael, and Christopher. And it started with a famous line that also opens the book, In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Christopher Tolkien recalls his father sharing the oral version around 1929, according to The Guardian. Eventually, in 1937, while in his study at Oxford, Tolkien decided to breathe new life into the story of Bilbo Baggins. Oh, Bilbo Higgins. There is a prior name, apparently.
0: Huh. Originally, Bilbo's name
1: was Higgins. I thought it was a typo for a second, and then I remembered. (laughs) Um, But he wrote an entire book based on the thrilling adventures that he often shared with his children. So the story is told in the form of an episodic quest, and most characters introduce a specific creature or type of creature of Tolkien's geography. Bilbo gains a new level of maturity, competence, and wisdom by accepting the disreputable, blah, disreputable romantic, fey, and adventurous sides of his nature and applying his wits and common sense, unlike our Bilbo.
0: Yeah, no common no sense. Common in that sense one. No
1: common um, sense, no. So the story reaches its climax in the Battle of Five Armies, where many of the characters and creatures from earlier chapters reemerge to engage in the conflict. So personal growth and forms of heroism are central themes to the story, along with um, motives of warfare, obviously. These themes have led critics to review Tolkien's own experiences during World War One as instrumental in shaping the story. And the author's scholarly knowledge of Germanic philosophy philology, and interest in mythology and fairy tales are often noted as, as influences. Um, the publisher ha- was encouraged by the book's critical and financial success, and therefore requested a sequel. Se- sequel? Wow. A seagull? A seagull? Hark, there's a seagull. No, um, sequel. As Tolkien's work progressed in the successor of The Lord of the Rings, he made retrospective accommodations for it in The Hobbit. These few but significant changes were integrated into the second edition, and further editions followed with minor um, amendments, including those reflecting Tolkien's changing concept of the world into which Bilbo had stumbled. So each edition of The Hobbit actually changed the story some to make it work and mesh better with The Lord of the Rings. Oh, neat. Yeah, so an original copy of The Hobbit um, has a lot of differences. I specifically remember seeing a lot of stuff changed about Gollum. Okay. Um, so he becomes like a much more, I think, like fleshed out character so that his entrance in Lord of the Rings isn't as, like, confusing. Right. Um, So, yeah, Gollum... <laughs> yeah, so Gollum in particular was something that, like, got a lot of, um, like, work done to it between editions. So, presumably, those stopped after Tolkien died or, like, after the Lord of the Rings was really, like, popular. Mm-hmm. Um, But, so, I guess if, if someone were so inclined, which now I kind of am, to try to find, like, first, second, third editions of The Hobbit and see what changed...
0: But we know his name changed.
1: Yes, Bilbo Higgins became Bilbo Baggins. Or it's a typo. Unknown. I'm pretty sure it's not, though. For a little bit of background on his early work and what Tolkien was up to when he published The Hobbit, in the early 1930s, he was pursuing an academic career at Oxford as Rowlinson and Bosworth Professor of Anglo-Saxon with a fellowship at Pembroke College. Several of his poems had been published in magazines and small collections, including Goblin Feet and The Cat and the Fiddle, A Nursery Rhyme Undone and Scandalous Secret Unlocked. What? It's a little bit of a (laughs) word. Um, Yeah. Um, And a reworking of of the nursery rhyme, Hey Diddle Diddle. Fun. (laughs) Um, His creative endeavors at this time also included letters from Father Christmas to his children, illustrated manuscripts that featured warring gnomes and goblins and a helpful polar bear alongside the creature... The creation of an el- of Elven languages and an attendant mythology, including the Book of Lost Tales, which he has been crea- he'd been creating since 1917, um, and so all of those saw posthumous publication. So after he passed mm-hmm. um, in 1955, oh, in a 1955 letter to W. H. Auden, Tolkien recollects that he began work on The Hobbit one day early in the 1930s when he was marking school certificate papers. Huh. <laughs> I'm done with this, so now I'm going to go live in my own fantasy world for a little bit and mm-hmm. write it down. <laughs> um, he found a blank page, and suddenly inspired, he wrote the words, in, the, in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. By late 19... So he is one of the few people who actually started at the beginning of his book. Right. Mm. <laughs> Which I find really funny. So by late 1932, he had finished the story and then lent the manuscript to several friends, including C.S. Lewis and a student of his named Elaine Griffiths. In 1936, when Griffiths was visited in Oxford by Susan Dagnall, a staff member of the publisher George Allen and Unwin, she is reported to have either lent Dagnall the book or suggested that she borrow it from Tolkien. Um, either way, Dagnall was impressed by it and then showed the book to Stanley Unwin, who then asked his 10-year-old son Rainer to review it. Rainer's favorable comments settled Allen and Unwin's decision to publish the book. Neat. So a 10-year-old kid... Pretty much decided the fate of high fantasy books in the modern
0: time. <laughs> I mean, I believe it.
1: I just found it really funny that this publisher's ten-year-old kid was like the deciding factor to publish Tolkien. <laughs> I'm,
0: it was aimed at being a <clears throat> children's book. So. It was,
1: especially *The Hobbit*. So, like, I mean, it make it's it's funny to think about, it, and I'm sure it would have gotten published like, eventually, mm-hmm. but it's just, it's really funny to me that the 10-year-old child is what made it happen when it did. <laughs> um, so next I want to talk a little bit about what influenced Tolkien, and as anyone who is familiar with his books knows, he was chock full of some interesting ideas, and he drew inspiration from pretty much everywhere. So I'm only going to touch on some that I found particularly interesting. Mm-hmm. So his portrayal of goblins in The Hobbit was pr- particularly influenced by George MacDonald's The Princess and the Goblin. Do you know The Princess and the Goblin? Nope. Okay. Um, so it was fir- first published in 1872, and it follows an eight-year-old Princess Irene as she stumbles upon goblins living in a nearby mine, meets a young miner boy named Curtie, gets a magic, gets a magic string from the ghost of her great-great-grandmother. Curtie gets imprisoned by the goblins. They stomp on some goblin feet. Irene and her magic thread save Curdy, and they are able to warn the people of her land or castle or whatever before the goblins fled the mine. Fun fact about this book is that it was made into a full-length animated movie in Night... 19- dark
0: Cauldron. Nope.
1: Nope? Ni- nope, not oh, The Dark Cauldron. Okay. It sounded like it was going to be sounds the inspiration very familiar, for The Dark Cauldron. Though. Yes, yeah. it does. And I, I didn't look into <laughs> oh, The, the black, Dark Cauldron. The Black Cauldron. Black cauldron. I didn't yeah. look into the... If there was any relationship between The Black Cauldron and this, but I'm thinking of something different. So it was made into a full-length animated movie in 1992 that was released in the U.S. in 94. And until I found this information, I thought this movie was a figment of my imagination. I couldn't for the life of me remember what it was called, which is really dumb because it's called The Princess and the Goblin. But for some reason, that seemed too obvious to me. And I, for whatever reason, I was having a really hard time remembering what this movie that I loved as a child was, and it, it is called The Princess and the Goblin, and it is an animated adaptation of this book from
0: 1872. <laughs> huh. Um it Sounds very familiar <clears throat> to Black Cauldron. It was,
1: it, it's similar, <laughs> and I think the fact that one of the, the kid's name is Curdie is probably what's throwing you, because that right. funny little critter...
0: Is Gertie. Is
1: Gertie, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the movie, the kids find out that the goblin goblins have very sensitive ears as well as very sensitive feet, hence the feet stomping, and they sing so, and that um, loud singing will hurt them. And I absolutely love the idea of a song saving the day, like as a child. Uh-huh. So like at one point when Curdie is trying to get um, the goblins are like trying to break into the castle or whatever, and um, the people like, the guards and stuff are afraid, and Curdy's like, running along, like, singing some song really, really loudly, and the goblins are, like, holding their ears and, like, writhing in pain because the song hurts them. I freaking loved it.
0: (laughs) I would have just screamed.
1: (laughs) Yes, well, I think it was supposed to be, like, the feeling behind the song, because it wasn't, like, loud noise hurt them. It was, like song in particular, for whatever reason. So I think it was, like, The Sentiment or something like that. They were
0: just Debbie Downers, is what they were. Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah. So the movie was not well-received in the U.S., but that could partially be because it was released barely a month before The Lion King. Oh. Yeah, so, whoops. (laughs) Poor planning on their part. Not their fault. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't think anything could have stood up to the prowess that was The Lion King. No. So, <laughs> so another influence that I thought might interest you, Jonathan, oh, yeah? is that Tolkien's work shows much influence from North mythology. Mm-hmm. And you might already know this, but I didn't. Which is why I did this, because I was looking at it and went, I actually don't know a lot about like Tolkien and the Hobbit. Mm-hmm. Like I know the stories, but I don't know a lot about him or the wider world in general, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So the Tolkien mythology um, influence reflected his lifelong passion for those stories and his academic interest in Germanic philology. So The Hobbit is no exception. The work shows influences from northern European literature, myths, and languages, especially from the poetic edda Mm -hmm. and the prose edda. Examples include the names of characters such as Philly, Killy, Oin, Gloin, Bifer, 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 Bofur? and Bomber. Dory, mm-hmm. oh. Dori-Nori, Dwalin, Balin, Dane, and Nain, and Thorin, Hoy. Thorin Oakenshield. <sighs> God, there's so many names. And Gandalf. Um, all derived from Old Norse names, um, which are pretty much the same. Philly, Killy, Oyn, Goyne. Although I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it right with the funny little accents, but I'm doing my best. Bevor, Bavor, Bomber. There's some extra consonants in there that are really hard to pronounce or like make obvious. The double R's and stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, that one's Dvalin instead of Dwalin. Mm-hmm.
0: No, it would be Dwalin still.
1: Well, I don't speak Norse. So. <laughs> <laughs> Old Norse. Um, but you get the idea. Although Gandalf was... Gandalfer, so that's fun, um,
0: and that still is Thorin, by the way. Oh, uh,
1: that's a really weird character. I just skipped right over it because I didn't know how to say it. Yeah, the,
0: <laughs> it, it looks like a B bee that's been like mirrored right in the middle, so it's got like yeah. a line, and then the B happens in the middle. Yeah,
1: it's weird. That, Instead that's of that's how yeah.
0: you pronounce T
1: H in. Oh, okay, words. neat. I I did not know that. Yep. And the last name is like Ikin or something like that. Mm-hmm. All right, but yeah, so um, heavy North naming mythology going on there. Um, but while their names are from Old Norse, the characters of the dwarves are more directly taken from fairy tales like Snow White and Snow White and the Red Rose, as collected by the Brothers Grimm. And the later tale may also have influenced the character of Bjorn, the, like, bear guy. Yeah. Because um, of the, I don't, have you ever read the story of the, of Snow White and the Red Rose? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, because they have, like, a, the bear thing. Right. Whole bear shenanigans. Um, so themes from old English literature, and specifically Beowulf, shaped the ancient world that Bilbo stepped into. Tolkien was a scholar of Beowulf and counted the epic among his most valuable sources for The Hobbit. He was one of the first critics to treat Beowulf like a literary work with value beyond the mere historical, and according to Wikipedia... His 1936 lecture "Beowulf: The Monsters and the Critics" is still rec- include. Oh, is still required in some Old English courses. Huh? Neat. Yeah. So from 1936, that's pretty good. Um, he borrowed several elements from Beowulf, including a monstrous, intelligent dragon, and certain descriptions of the Hobbit seem to have been lifted straight out of Beowulf with some minor rewording, such as when um, the dragon stretches its neck out to sniff for intruders. Hmm. Um. Likewise. His descriptions of the lair as um, accessed through a secret passage mirror those in Beowulf. Um, and I haven't read Beowulf since high school, so like some of this sounds familiar to me and some of this like, oh, that's new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, other specific plot elements and features in The Hobbit that show similarities to Beowulf include the title Thief, um, as Bilbo is called by Gollum and then later by Smog, and Smog's personality, which leads to the, the destruction of Lake Town. Um, Tolkien refines parts of Beowulf Beowulf's plot that he appears to have found less than satisfactory, um, such as the details about the cup thief and the dragon's intellect and personality. So he kind of built off of those things in Beowulf and um, like made them his own essentially. Yeah yeah. Um, and last but not least, the representation of the dwarves in the Hobbit was influenced by his own selective reading of medieval texts regarding the Jewish people and their history. Hmm. Yeah, I did not know that, not even a little bit. Uh, so that was really interesting to me. But the dwarfs' characteristics of being dispossessed from their ancient homeland at the Lonely Mountain and living among other groups whilst still retaining their own culture are all derived from the medieval images of Jews. Um, while they took and took their warlike nature stems um, from accounts in, like, the Hebrew Bible, like, to so, like, the earlier, the, like, really, the early books. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, like, clash and, like, warfare in those. Um, which, considering, like, hypothetically, like, the time it would make sense that, kind of, you have to fight for everything. (laughs) Um,
0: You know, that's a... uh, That's, thinking back on it, that's, like, a little bit problematic. Like, I I think it's cool that it's like, oh, this is, like, the Jews. They were, you know, forced out of their homeland. But at the same time, like, he's also grabbing his dwarven stuff from North mythology, which is, like, where uh, dwarves were extremely greedy.
1: Oh, wow. And
0: also, like, dwarves' sense have been depicted with large noses. And now that makes me feel really awkward about using dwarves in anything.
1: <laughs> We're just going to go with it was the whole um, <clears throat> being forced out of their homeland and just leave that. um,
0: <laughs> it. That's one of the facts that I probably wish I didn't know, because <laughs> mm. now dwarves just seem very racist.
1: All right. The dwarvish calendar invented for the Hobbit reflects the Jewish calendar in beginning in late autumn. And although Tolkien denied allegory the dwarves taking Bilbo out of his complacent existence has been seen as an eloquent metaphor for the impoverishment of Western society without... Hmm. So while The Hobbit has been adapted and elaborated upon in many ways, its sequel, The Lord of the Rings, is often claimed to be its greatest legacy. Um, Obviously, it's pretty popular.
0: (laughs) Also a much larger book than The Hobbit.
1: (laughs) A lot larger. Um... I mean, a part of that stems from the fact that, like, the, the Hobbit is a children's story, right. and the Lord of the Rings is much more aimed at like young adults. Um, the plots share the same basic structure, progressing in the same sequence, but the Lord of the Rings contains several more supporting scenes and has a more sophisticated plot plot structure, um, and follows the paths of multiple characters instead of just really focusing on Bilbo. Um, Tolkien wrote a letter, a later story in much less humorous tones, and infused it with more complex moral and philosophical themes. And the differences between the two stories can cause difficulties when readers expecting them to be similar in style find that they aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, So some people really prefer The Hobbit. Some people prefer The Lord of the Rings because they are such a different style.
0: Right, like The Hobbit's really easy to read and fun and adventurous, and The Lord of the Rings is very deep in yeah. Very complex language. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. So people who don't realize that the Hobbit book, the Hobbit, was kind of intended for children, and Lord of the Rings was intended for adults, um, definitely, I, I think, kind of struggle with how different they are. I remember I read Lord of the Rings first, and then I read the Hobbit, and I was, I was thrown by like how much simpler the Hobbit was. I assumed it would be similar in scope to like the Lord of the Rings, even though it was a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then yeah. you,
0: then you find out about the silmarillion and realize you have to have a whole new dictionary to yes. <laughs> even understand the book.
1: <laughs> I have the silmarillion and I have a Tolkien dictionary and I just not have had I haven't had the time or like the, the like energy to put in the effort to to read it. Yeah. I intend to. I have both and I'm like ready. I just need to have like a a time when I can really like do it. <laughs> Dive into it. Yeah. Um so, many of the thematic and stylistic differences arose because Tolkien wrote The Hobbit as a story for children, obviously, and The Lord of the Rings for the same audience that had subsequently grown up since his publication. Because I think The Lord of the Rings was published, like... It was way later. It was way later, yeah. Yeah. So, like, all the a lot of the kids that, like, he had geared The Hobbit towards were, like, you know, adults in their own right, probably, like, 30s, 40s, you know, whatever. So, they were grown adults, and, like, his goal was to appeal to the same audience... So he had to make it work for adults. Um,
0: I wish other people would do that. Looking <laughs> at you, Pokemon. <laughs>
1: um, and I, I wrote that it was kind of similar to how Harry Potter gets darker and more mature the farther in you get. Yep. Because it followed its aging audience, like from young childhood through like puberty and like young adulthood. Um, so I was like, that's like it's you know it's a good way to kind of keep an audience is to like gear your gear your writing towards where they are now kind of deal. yeah. Um, And
0: then it's always relevant because then, well, I guess now that's getting less relevant because people can binge, watch, read, listen mm, so easily. But I I was going to say it's always relevant because if you find the first book when you're a kid, you'll grow up with it, but there's a lot of ways to just plow right through those these days.
1: Yeah, that's true. I found the first book, I think, when I was 11. Um, And I remember at the time, I read the first two in very quick succession, of Harry Potter, sorry, and then I had to wait for the third one to come out, and I was very upset. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I also remember my librarian at my middle school telling me I couldn't check out the second book until she had asked my mom if it was okay, and I was furious because it's scary. No, because my my family is very religious, and she was worried that my my mom would not approve because scary. because it's technically witchcraft and wizardry and that yep. kind of thing. It's so like she knew my family, and she was worried that my mom wouldn't like it if I checked it out. Yeah. But I was standing there going, "She let me read the first one. Like, yeah. why? Why is this not working?" But because I hadn't checked it out from her, the first one, mm-hmm. she was like, "Well, no, I have to get permission for your mom." And I was angry. Yeah. Fun fact: Librarians don't do that anymore. It is not what—at least what I learned in library school was you do not like police what people want to check out.
0: No gatekeeping.
1: Yeah, exactly. If they if they want to check out a book on witchcraft and wizardry, you gotta let him. Yep. Pretty much. Um, yeah, so things have changed. Um, so, um, oh yeah, back to the um, getting older with the audience. His uh, concept of Middle Earth was also continually changing, and it slowly evolved throughout his life and his writings. So, like, the Middle Earth of The Hobbit is a little bit different from the Middle Earth of Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion and all that stuff. Like, yeah. it's all connected, but, like, there are definitely definitive um, like changes to it, mm-hmm. from what I could tell. So, while mm-hmm. many other authors have published works of fantasy before Tolkien, the great success of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings led directly to a popular resurgence of the genre, and this has caused Tolkien to be po- um, popularly identified as the father of modern fantasy literature, yep. or more precisely, of high fantasy. Right. In 2008, the Times ranked him sixth in a list of the 50 greatest British writers since 1945. And Forbes ranked him the fifth top-earning dead celebrity in 2009. Wow. He died in 1973. So, like, that's a long time to still be, um, like, a top-earning celebrity after death. (laughs) Um, His writings inspired other mediums as well. However, Tolkien was not fond of all the artistic representations of his work that were produced in his lifetime, and was sometimes harshly disapproving. Oh. <laughs> oh, yeah. In 1946, he rejected suggestions for illustrations by Horace Engels for the German edition of The Hobbit as too disney Bilbo with a dribbling nose, and Gandalf as a figure of vulgar fun rather than the Odinic wanderer as, that I think of. Um, Tolkien was also skeptical of the emergent Tolkien fandom in the United States, Whoops! And in 1954, he returned proposals for the dust jacket of the American edition of the Lord of the Rings writing, quote, Thank you for sending me the projected blurbs, which I return. The Americans are not, as a rule, at all amenable to criticism or correction, but I think their effort is so poor that I feel constrained to make some effort to improve it, end quote. Was not a fan. (laughs) Um, On receiving a screenplay for a proposed film adaptation of The Lord of the Rings by Morton Grady Zimmerman, Tolkien wrote, I would ask them to make an effort of imagination sufficient to understand the irritation and on occasion the resentment of an author who finds increasingly as he proceeds his work treated as it would seem carelessly in general, in places recklessly, and with no evident signs of any appreciation for what it is all about. Burn!
0: Yeah, wow. Ouch. yeah. Um, now I feel bad that he didn't live, I mean, he lived a long time. But, he did live a long time. <laughs> but he didn't live to see the first movie because I feel like Peter Jackson really did it justice.
1: Yeah, I, and like, I mean, we have no idea of what, like, was proposed by Zimmerman. Mm-hmm. So, like, for all we know, it was, like something, like, something similar and he just didn't think it was good enough. So, like, there's a whole, like, We have no idea of knowing what he would have thought of the the movies that have come out since. He
0: probably would have hated The Hobbit.
1: Oh, probably. I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I get the feeling that, like, if he wasn't directly involved in it, he would have been, like, highly skeptical anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But maybe if Peter Jackson had been like, hey, help me collaborate on this, maybe he would have been, you know, a little bit more amiable about (laughs) about it. Who knows, though? But, like... I love the current books, movies, so... I mean, The
0: Lord of the Rings, like, was only jovial for a very small amount of time, and I feel like that's reflective of the book itself. Yes, exactly,
1: yeah. It is very much, it's not like a caricature, it's very much, like, true to the feel of the book, yeah. All right. So, additionally, a biographical film, Tolkien, was released on May 10th, 2019. It focused on his early life and war experiences... And the Tolkien family in Estate have stated that they did not approve of, authorize, or participate in the making of the film. Which leads me to think they did not like it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, awkward. Um I haven't I haven't seen it. I wanted to, and now I'm a little less yeah, keen.
0: I had heard that and I'm like, oh, mm. this is probably just gonna be like heavily romanticized for yeah. no reason. And like the trailers kinda looked like it was as well. And yeah. I'm like, this doesn't seem right.
1: Yeah. Um On the other side, Amazon has acquired the global television rights to The Lord of the Rings, and the series will not be a direct adaptation of the books, but will instead introduce new stories that are set before The Fellowship of the Ring. And the press release referred to previously unexplored stories based on J.R.R. Tolkien's original writings, with Amazon as a producer in conjunction with The Tolkien Estate and The Tolkien Trust, um, in addition to HarperCollins and New Line Cinema. So I actually kind of have high hopes for that because oh, yeah. the estate and the trust and and everything are all involved And Amazon. At least the stuff that I've watched that are Amazon funded, like that are like fantasy esque, are I've all I've all I've all really enjoyed. But yeah. we just watched um Carnival Row, and that was a lot of fun. That so. was good. That <laughs> was good. Um, so yeah, like fingers crossed for that one. I think mm-hmm. um, there are also some interesting tributes to Tolkien and his writings as well. Did you know that there are asteroids named for Bilbo Baggins and Tolkien? No. There are. Neat. Fun fact. Um, There are three mountains in the um, Caldwalder range of British Columbia, Canada, that have been named after Tolkien's characters Um, Mount Shadowfax, Mount Gandalf, and Mount Aragorn. Nice. Yeah. I did not know that either. There are also several Tolkien named roads all over the world. Um, And in the field of taxonomy, over 80 taxa or genre and species have been given scientific names honoring or deriving from characters or other fictional elements of the Lord of the Rings. I
0: believe that. I think I've seen a few of those before. Yes.
1: Um, also, the Hobbit and other his other works set in Middle-earth, so basically the Silmarillion. Um, several taxa have been named after the character Gollum, also known as Smeagol. Smeagol. Yikes. Um, as well as for <laughs> for various Hobbits. Um, various elves, dwarves, and other creatures that appear in his writings, as well as Tolkien himself, have been honored in the names of several species, including the amphipod Leucothae Tolkini and the wasp Shirepleti- Shire Pletius. Close enough, Tolkini. So, Shire Tolkien. <laughs> uh-huh. um, It has been noted that Tolkien has been accorded formal taxonomic commemoration like no other author. Hmm. So apparently people really like his names for things in the world of naming creatures and species. So. Yep. <laughs> um, and then last but not least, since 2003, the Tolkien Society has organized Tolkien Reading Day, which takes takes place on March 25th in schools around the world. So feel free to uh, join in and participate, probably on your own time. Don't storm a school to go read Tolkien, but um, read it on, on your own on March 25th. And I will definitely be doing the same now that I know that that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that's The Hobbit and um, J.R.R. Tolkien. Nice. Yeah. Fun, fun. So, yeah, something that I was vaguely familiar with already, but kind of took a more interesting dive into. And I learned some things. So, that was fun. <laughs>
0: I can't go as high as that last note needs to go.
1: It <laughs> gets just, really high. I'm just glad you didn't bring your little saxophone thingy in here. Oh, hold on. No! <laughs> <laughs> we
0: we went to the Biggie yesterday, and they have this little, <laughs> like, saxophone that... It was, like, $10, and it has, like, a little balloon on the end, and... <sighs> I'm gonna annoy the hell with Kylie out of that.
1: <laughs> I so I so regret encouraging you to get one of those. I thought you were just gonna get one of the cute little like wooden flutes. No, big
0: loud <sighs> saxophone. Yep. Anyways, uh, my topic is on September 17th, and hopefully, if I wasn't absolutely abysmal at that, uh, some people will recognize that <laughs> as the one of the little tunes from a song called "Suicide Is Painless." Oh, fun. Uh, yep. And that was for that was the theme song for a show about a mobile army surgical hospital in the oh. Korean war <laughs> that premiered on CBS and would soon take the world by storm. I'm talking about MASH. Yeah. Yep. So MASH starred Alan Alda as Benjamin Franklin Hawkeye Pierce and was the show's...
1: <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't think I realized this first first news from Benjamin Franklin yeah
0: he's Benjamin Franklin
1: I always just knew him I always heard him referred to as Hawkeye
0: yep Benjamin Franklin Hawkeye Pierce
1: it's one of my dad's favorite shows he loves MASH uh,
0: it's probably one of my favorite shows as well
1: <laughs> I've watched a lot of episodes of MASH but I have very little context because they were never in any sort of order <laughs> oh no
0: well they also might not have just felt like they were in order because it really was random stories every time It's possible yeah I think they only had a few areas where it was like uh to be continued
1: yeah i all i know is that my dad would watch it and i would periodically catch episodes and be like i have no idea what's happening <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. i've watched all of mash twice i think Wow. yep
1: nice yeah i've um, watched all of phineas and ferb several times oh my god
0: <laughs> so benjamin franklin hawkeye pierce uh alan Aldo was the character alan Aldo played uh and he was the show's only cast member to be in every single episode oh wow yep there was two hundred and fifty one episodes. Wow. Yep. And he was he played a hotshot, quick to jest, in many ways ego maniacal captain and a top notch surgeon. Nice. Yep. He also it also starred Loretta Swit as Margaret Hot Lips Houlihan. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you found that very funny. Yep. Um a, she was a by the books head nurse and major of the four oh seven seven. She was She's blonde. Yes. Okay. She was the only other cast member to be in every single season as a main character, and the show ran, well, I mentioned the show ran for 251 episodes. Loretta only missed eight of them.
1: Oh, wow. Yep. Good job, girl.
0: So the show's theme is largely framed as a comedy, with regular deadpan lines such as Hawkeye after asking a patient how he was feeling from a fixed shoulder surgery. The patient responds with, I think I'll live, and Hawkeye quips, sure you will. I've never lost a patient. I've never lost anything. Have you seen my stethoscope? (laughs) Whoopsies. (laughs) Whoopsies. Uh, or from a character that was a young, quiet telegraph and radio operator named Radar. Uh, when he, when a visiting officer uh, was asking for a drink, he brought one, saying, "Compliments of Henry Blake. Compliments of Henry Blake. Brandy, Scotch, vodka, and for your convenience, all in the same bottle."
1: <laughs> oh boy.
0: Or this gem from the aforementioned Henry Blake, the commanding officer of the 4077, to Major Frank Burns. This is Frank Burns, one of our best surgeons, a real killer.
1: Oh. Uh
0: Fr- Frank Burns often played alongside Margaret Houlihan as the other straight-laced, uptight ranking officer, and he was he was one of the stereotypical I got my rank from social status rather than practical skill officer in the show. Oh. Yeah.
1: Oh. Oops. Yes. <laughs>
0: but the show didn't just become famous for comedy. It became famous from also being one of the most serious and hard-hitting shows of the time, and possibly all time. The term dramedy was actually likely coined from someone describing MASH back in 1978. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, Some examples of this would be, like, in any doctoral procedural, the loss of a patient, lack of supplies, attacking of hospitals because they were, quote-unquote, helping the enemy. Um, A lot of serious tones were there. Other examples were really meant to approach a line that CBS was not comfortable with as the creators were largely using their platform to make commentary on the often overlooked Korean War, which mm-hmm. the show was set in. But more importantly, currently, the the Vietnam and Cold War were happening during the show's filming. Ah, yeah. Yes. Mm. So <laughs> the, the show very much became a, con- a commentary on current events. Yeah. And CBS was not a fan of that at all.
1: I could, I could see why that might be. <clears throat>
0: yep. Um, so one of, one of the big moments that got a lot of pushback was with commanding officer Henry Blake. He was given his going home papers. So there was a big celebration and drinks and pranks and the like. The 407 gets Henry a new suit to go home in. They all sing him off with a rousing for he's a jolly good fellow and then immediately get back to the wounded after Henry leaves. The show ends with the 407 being sad that their friend has left, but happy that he gets to go home. And that's when the aforementioned uh, telegraph boy, Radar, enters a surgical room with a page of the script that no one else was given. Oh no. And it just says, I have a message. Lieutenant Connell. Why am I crying?
1: <laughs> Wait, really? Yeah, what the f? Oh god! <laughs> He's genuinely crying, guys.
0: I guess I remember that episode too well. I don't. Can't even see. Do you want me to read it? Holy shit. It's a good show.
1: Apparently.
0: Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake's plane was shot down over the Sea of Japan. It spun in. There were no survivors.
1: Oh, no. If you don't cry like this on our wedding day, I'm going to divorce you. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying, if this show makes you cry like this and you do not cry... I just you have a very me?
0: vivid imagination, <laughs> and I remember it happening. Jesus.
1: I'm just saying. Yes. We we're gonna like write that in a prenup that if you don't cry, I get to Maybe the it's too few. early for
0: me. And my brain's not firing on all cylinders yet.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> what, like nine? It's nine. <laughs> You're
0: supposed to be like, yeah, it's six o'clock, we're doing this super early. He's not awake yet.
1: Well, it's a Sunday. It's 9 a.m. on a Sunday. Uh-huh. That's pretty early for us. <laughs>
0: So the the following scene shows the actors actually crying during the scene, and in the background you can hear other like background actors dropping surgical instruments.
1: Oh, yeah. So no one knew. Yikes. Yep.
0: Um, and then everyone just returns to taking care of the wounded. Oh. Yep. And then the episode was titled Abyssinia, Henry, as in like a I guess that was like a slang common back then Abyssinia was, mm-hmm. like, I'll be seeing you. Yeah. But, it, like, it's, it's spelt really weirdly, so, like, people wouldn't really know uh. what that meant. Um, and that was the finale of season three. Oh. So there was nothing that followed it for a long time.
1: Oh, that's upsetting.
0: <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, this got extreme criticism from fans and CBS and 20th Century Fox. They even got, like thousands of death threats. Like the the creators. Like everyone was extremely upset about this happening. And the the main reason that CBS and Twentieth Century Fox cited was that the show was supposed to be patriotic to a fault. Yep. So they wanted it to be propaganda Mm -hmm. essentially. And the creators were like Absolutely not. Too late. Yep. So they didn't care at all. They felt that it was important to show that there's no guarantee that anyone gets home safe from war.
1: Yeah, agreed. Yep. That's that's the the danger. Like that's that's what you agree to.
0: Yep. The, it, this particular moment was actually so bad that some of the cast members hated it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, the one in particular was the second leading man, Trapper John. I don't remember what his <laughs> actor's that name is. Name is. Yeah. <laughs> but the the guy who played Trapper John was so pissed off that this happened that he actually just left.
1: Oh, really? Like,
0: he just got up and left. And when they tried to pull him back and say, you have to do this, he pointed out that he actually never signed a contract with the show. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) That they forgot to give him a contract. Oh, geez. So there was absolutely nothing stopping him from just leaving. And he was eventually replaced with uh, another character called BJ Honeycutt, who would then finish out the run as the second leading man all the way to the end of the 11th season.
1: All right. Yeah. Good for him. I... I... I can see why people would be very upset about them doing that, though, because, like, especially with the Vietnam War going on, the draft, you didn't agree Mm -hmm. to go. Yep. Like, that wasn't your choice. Yep. So the fact that, like, once you get to go home, you might not necessarily make it was probably, like, way too close to reality for a lot of people. Mm Mm-hmm. Because, like, some people agreed, some people didn't.
0: Yep. So there's the... The networks wanted this to be extremely, like, pro-war. And this show, if you've ever watched it, was extremely (laughs) anti-war.
1: Yes, I do recall that.
0: Yep. So, So the reason why it was so easy for them to hit some of these, like, really deep moments was that some of the actors were actually veterans in the Korean War. Oh, wow. Namely Alan Alda. Oh, wow. Yep. Alan Aldo was a Korean War veteran, and so was a, another guy who played the character Maxwell Klinger. They were, they were both Vietnam, I mean, um, Korean War veterans. Wow. And there were a lot of other people on set who were veterans, and they regularly, like, pulled veteran groups to try and get more um, information. Yeah. Um, probably one of the best episodes of the series that contained such a line pulled from another veteran was in an episode that they decided to film entirely in black and white, where a war correspondent was interviewing the 4077, the priest of the unit, Father Mulcahy, gives one line to the interviewer, and that is, when the doctors cut into a patient and it's cold, the way it is now, steam rises from the body, and the doctor will will warm his hands over the open wound. Oh. How can anyone look on that and not feel changed? So that was a that was a line. <laughs> I'm gonna mark this one explicit so I can leave that in there what's wrong with me today
1: he's just like water fauceting over here Whoa. you have tears on your glasses sweetheart i know
0: it's awful
1: can you see through it or do you want to clean them it's
0: fine i fucking love this show it's a good comedy and you should all watch it but christ
1: no one's gonna want to watch it now that you're crying over it
0: it's so good so anyway that that was a quote from stop
1: laughing at me <laughs> Okay, I'm good. So that was a
0: quote from a veteran that they had the the priest of the show read. Um, Gonna have to dip back into the funny here for a moment. Yeah, you might need to. I need to take a break from the sadness. (laughs) (laughs) Because there is just a lot of it. Uh, This
1: does not sound like a comedy at all to me.
0: Yeah, so speaking of the cold, there were two episodes that were filmed in the dead of Korean winter when the cast had to be bundled in sweaters and gloves, and much of the episodes were filmed in front of a roaring fire in a, tr- in a trash can. <laughs> Funny story about these episodes was that they were only written when there were too many unnecessary to critiques from the actors. Oh. <laughs> because they filmed in Malibu in a 100-degree heat in the middle of the summer. <laughs>
1: So, uh, payback. <laughs> yeah, so
0: anytime the actor is starting getting a little too melty with their criticism, the writers would write an episode that they ended up deeming cold snap episodes. So that's why they kind of also, if you like watch, it doesn't really happen in like, oh, like it's getting to be fall. Oh, it's, you know, it's spring or whatever in Korea. It's just all of a sudden there's a winter episode.
1: <laughs> <laughs> payback. <laughs> yeah.
0: I think there were only three cold snap episodes because the cast eventually wisened up and was like, let's not push their buttons anymore
1: <laughs> we we can only talk so much smack about this show before we get to film in sweaters in the heat <laughs> yep
0: uh one of the best reoccurring bits or one of the funniest and maybe it doesn't hold up so well now but it was definitely one of the funniest then i don't think it was ever really that disrespectful either but the one of the main characters maxwell Klinger was only supposed to be in one episode Mm -hmm. and he was um the writers originally wanted him to actually be gay or trans and the cbs and fox just wouldn't allow that so instead he was someone who was cross-dressing to try and get out of the military um and he ended up being so funny that they brought him back for most of the episodes uh and he's one of the the longest running cast members but one 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 of the times he shows up in a wedding dress oh no just just walks into scene in a wedding dress <laughs> and <laughs> for the, no
1: apparent reason
0: yeah and cuz he he just had a whole um rack of dresses that he could put on so that whenever he walked into scene he could put on a dress and come in and they actually showed that dress in a bu- that rack in a bunch of the episodes they just had like a, one of the one of the living huts had just a rack of his like costume dresses and at one point he like goes in and like shows them all off and is like telling him telling everybody which is his favorite dresses for which occasions <laughs> and um, but the wedding dress apparently was so funny to the creators and cast members because they weren't expecting it him to pick that one that they ended up using the wedding dress two more times
1: oh really <laughs> yeah
0: um, not a not as funny um, gags but the same wedding dress ended up getting used as a as the wedding dress for a dream state that Margaret Houlihan was having. There was, again, dipping back into the sad, but there was was an episode where they all couldn't get sleep for, it was like 72 hours because they just kept bringing in wounded from the field and it just did not stop. There was like lots and lots of bombardments. So... The episode showed them in their sleep-deprived state, and every once in a while, showing each of the main characters having dreams like in a, their short sleeps,
1: like a daydream, like
0: well, not a daydream, like oh. when they finally got like their oh, two oh, seconds like to sleep, yeah, and pretty much all of their dreams were PTSD dreams, no, oh. and Margaret Houlihan's was that she would never get married, and,
1: oh,
0: yeah. So she, like she wore the wedding dress in that one, and then like during like the winter ceremony or whatever, she just noticed that there was like blood all over the wedding dress, oh. and that she had to like immediately go back into like fixing somebody, and Ooh. and then there there was oh and then Klinger actually wore the wedding dress when he gets married to a Korean uh woman that he met at a at one of the like ally accepting barns.
1: That's adorable. Yeah,
0: like one. Of... I think that was in the last season.
1: Oh. Yeah. That's cute. So the,
0: the finale is... I mentioned what, right in the beginning that the, that the show would kind of take the world by storm. The season finale is oh. the most watched TV episode in history. Not just for then. Not just in 72. It is the most watched episode in history. Wow. It had 125 million people watch on the day that it was aired. Like, at the time it was aired. Wow. And 70, that was 77% of all people who owned a television.
1: That's impressive.
0: Yeah. Um, I think there was one show that had a higher percentage than MASH, but Mm -hmm. that was back when there were only about 10,000 households total that had TVs and had (laughs) had 88% of viewership or something like that.
1: There were probably only so many options when you were there were only 10,000 TVs.
0: (laughs) Yeah. For reference, the biggest television event in the recent decade aired this year, which was the finale of Game of Thrones. We watched it. That episode pulled in... 13.2 13.2 million views. Wow. And the average amount of views over the entire last season of Game of Thrones was only 44 million views. So this one episode of M.A.S.H. almost brought in three times the amount of views as Game of Thrones. Yeah. What was so, the
1: number for, the, for M.A.S.H.? 125
0: million. Okay. Yep. There's also a fun legend that surrounds the finale of M.A.S.H. Uh, as the, the finale episode was two and a half hours. Wow. And... Apparently, no one wanted to miss a second of the show. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Because three minutes after MASH ended, plumbers in New York claimed that the entire sewer system went down.
1: Oh, jeez.
0: Because three minutes after the show ended, the 77% of New York that had TVs
1: (laughs) all flushed
0: their toilets at the same time (laughs) and broke the sewer system.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Because
0: <laughs> viewers had reported that they would not not see any of the the last episode.
1: Did it not have, like, commercial breaks? It did not. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Fair enough. All right, that's justified. I wouldn't want to miss it either.
0: Yeah. The By the end of the show's uh, run, though, like, the second to last episode, um, actually, when when it first started, commercials were only, like, a grand to get put into the MASH time slot, mm-hmm. which was kind of, like, the boilerplate cost for advertising and then by the end of the series it cost five hundred thousand oh, dollars to play, to put an, a commercial into the show
1: oh boy
0: yeah that's how popular mash got
1: wowzers yeah
0: so i think that's it about mash for me
1: all right nice we're yeah. not describing the last episode
0: oh yeah so the last episode you guys can skip ahead like 3 minutes if you want if you don't want to know what happens on yeah. the last episode. If
1: nobody wants mash spoilers. <laughs> just it, skip. it's
0: very long. You should be able to deal with mash spoilers.
1: It's been a long time, yeah.
0: The last episode is probably the most emotional episode of the entire series.
1: Are you going to cry again?
0: I hope not. I'd like to get through this one. <laughs> probably not because it's not like a singular line.
1: Like mm, true, yeah. I think
0: maybe reading a singular line is what did me in there. Maybe, yeah. So the the episode starts with um, BJ Honeycutt and Hawkeye Pierce. And I think... No, I think that that was it. It might have even just been Hawkeye. But they were coming back from trying to rescue an entire village. They had a bus that was shipped to them so that they could go out and save a village of Korean people. And unfortunately, it was during an advancement of the enemy forces... So as they're driving back in the bus, there's enemy uh like jeeps that come so they try and hide the bus the bus in the brush and Hawkeye's telling everyone to be quiet, and there's this woman in this Korean woman in the back with her chickens from her um from her farm that she was trying to bring with her, and the chickens just wouldn't shut up, and Hawkeye was trying to get her to quiet the chickens somehow and of, he's like trying to get everyone to be quiet and he's looking at everybody and eventually the the chicken stops and he turns around to say thank you and the woman killed the chicken and then it cuts to after the war and hawkeye is in a mental institution <laughs> 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 and they're they're trying to find out what what happened to him what's wrong with him and there's like it shows like all of the 4077 like after the war and it keeps doing like flashbacks to in the war as like they're talking about that last day because that rescue ended up happening on the last day of the war um or like the last week eventually hawkeye realizes that he's being locked up for a reason because he does have ptsd because the chicken that was making noise was actually the baby of the woman in the back and that the trauma of the event made him replace a baby with a chicken.
1: Much easier to handle that way. Yep. So yeah, so now that Jonah's is crying.
0: So yeah, MASH is a good show.
1: I have no inclination to watch it now.
0: I mean, 90% of MASH is comedy, but they really, really dig deep when they try and show something that was wrong before. Fair enough. Yep. So that's MASH.
1: Yikes.
0: All right, so time for our call to action. Um, You can visit us on Facebook and Twitter at Halfwit History. You can go to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash halfwitpod. And you can visit our website at www.halfwit-history.com.
1: We would really appreciate it if anyone would rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Um, We definitely really appreciate um, reviews specifically. Um, You could just leave some stars. You don't necessarily have to write anything down. Totally up to you, um, but that's definitely a really great way for us to um, like get the word like stay on words. rankings. Yeah,
0: that way. Yeah. <laughs> stay stay on leaderboards. <laughs> we need to get the high score, guys.
1: I know. I want a high score.
0: No more, um, no more of this asking. Go out there and rate us if you listen to us. I don't care what stars it is. <laughs> Give us a rating.
1: Uh, but yeah, we'd really appreciate that. Um, any feedback, um, suggestions? If you have some something that really interests you coming up, and you like think we'd be interested in talking about it feel free to just send us an email we'd love to hear from you yeah absolutely i think that's all i got
0: (laughs) yeah so fun facts then all right what year is your fun fact in
1: 1994
0: okay so i'll go first september 18th of 1971 momofuku ando markets the first cup noodle oh (laughs) packaging it in a waterproof polystyrene container
1: i ate a lot of those as a cheerleader Because it was the only thing that you could get hot at the really cold games outside. Yep. I ate a lot of those in my high school career.
0: I love cup noodle.
1: I mean, I do too. It's also partly nostalgic for me, though. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Mine is September twenty second, 1994. The Friends TV sitcom created by David Crane and Marta Kaufman debuts on NBC starring Jennifer Aniston, Courtney Cox, Lisa Kudrow, Matt LeBlanc, Matthew Perry and David Schwimmer as a group of friends. Yay! I'll be there for you. All right, um, anyway.
0: <laughs> <laughs> as always, I'm your halfwit.
1: And I'm your historian.
0: And we hope you enjoyed listening.
1: Bye. my heart you another day. left another man I feel you won't recognize me even if we